Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This is a first of a two-part sermon. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking quite a bit at verse 21 today, Ephesians chapter 5, and then continuing on in that theme really over the next few weeks, but um, in particular next week on the question of Christian marriage. So what was the big story this week? Anybody, anybody, any opinions on the big story this week? Well, there it is. Let's put it up on the screen, Mac. Uh, the balloon, the mysterious balloon that traversed our entire country. Everyone had an opinion on the balloon. Um, the official line of uh, the Chinese government was that it was a, a weather balloon that had just mysteriously drifted off course over America. Um, there was a more nefarious uh, uh, purpose suggested by uh, many in America. Some suggested this was a, uh, a very carefully constructed spy balloon. If you listen to certain people on the internet, uh, you heard everything from it contained nuclear pellets that it was dropping on the country to it had uh, uh, electronic signals that it was going to use to jam uh, military radar. Some people said it was packed with a uh, new variant of the COVID virus that was being sprayed over the country. And you go down the list of all the things, including one of the, the most interesting one is that it was, it was collecting TikTok data from people's phones uh, so that the Ch Chinese government could exploit that uh, for future purposes. It's very interesting, isn't it, uh, when an event like that kind of captures the imagination of uh, the country for better or worse. Everybody has an opinion on it. And uh, really, your opinion on the event itself has a lot to do with your sense of who you trust and who you don't trust. And the issue of trust in our culture, in our churches, in our marriages, in our families and homes uh, is a really incredibly important issue that we all struggle with. There's been a lot of surveys done on the issue of trust over the years and how much trust has changed in our culture and society. So much so the Pew Report recently came out with a study that said only 22% of adults are classified as high trusters. Only 22% of adults in America are people who tend to trust what people tell them. Um, of those folks, 37% of folks over 65 have a high degree of trust in their life. Only 11% of people under 30 feel like they can trust anyone. Um, and certainly, uh, the reality is, if you don't trust people, then you're certainly not going to put your life in their hands or be submissive in any way to the things that they might suggest to you, especially if they position themselves as an authority. So trust is breaking down. Authority is breaking down. And our ability to operate well and effectively in society is breaking down. Biblically, what's breaking down is our ability to submit. We heard last week as Pablo preached on it, verse 21 of Ephesians 5 says, submit to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that um, submission, the idea of submission, the word submission, has become in the modern society an anti-virtue. It is an anti-virtue in the minds of many people. In fact, they would probably say to you, anyone who has to submit to someone is automatically being abused. Nobody should submit to anyone. And yet here's the Bible saying to us flatly and clearly that we are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a moment in the preaching of the book of Ephesians amongst many where you're going to feel the tension of the biblical worldview up against our culture. And not only today, but over the next three weeks, as we talk about the household codes in the book of Ephesians, what God's Word teaches us about marriage, about parenting, and about vocation, and how we live and work together in the vocational sphere. What I want to suggest to you this morning as we look at verse 21 and all those things that are going to follow it here in the second half of Ephesians is this. The foundation for a healthy Christian household is mutual submission. The foundation for a healthy Christian household is mutual submission. Let me read for you beginning then in verse 18 of chapter 5 this morning. I'm just going to read my way through to verse 21 today, but this is God's holy and inerrant word. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us as we wrestle with this idea of submission, mutual submission. Lord, the hair on the back of our neck stands up in this culture when we talk about something like submission because it seems to be so countercultural to the way everything operates today. So I pray that you'll give us wisdom from your Spirit to know and understand what this looks like for us, what it should look like for us, especially in our homes and in our households. Father, give us grace to understand and to live this out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk first of all from verse 21 about the disposition of the Christian household. It is a place, the Bible tells us, of mutual submission. So it says, submit to one another. The word for submit here in verse 21 is hupotasso. It's a Greek term. And it basically, if you kind of break it down to its most practical expression in the original language, it is to arrange oneself under. Arrange yourself under. When the Bible speaks of submission. That's what it's calling us to. 
And there's lots of ways that the Bible talks about submission in different categories. One of them, which I don't think there would be any dispute about for Christian people, in Ephesians chapter 1, earlier in this book we've been preaching on in verse 22, it tells us that we should arrange ourselves under Christ. In fact, that's almost the basic definition of what it means to be a Christian. We have arranged ourselves under Christ, Ephesians 1, 22, and He put all things, the Lord, the Father, put all things under Christ's feet. And He gave Him as head over all things to the church. And so the first thing that the Bible wants to assert to us about our understanding of what it means to submit is that we're supposed to submit to Christ. We're supposed to arrange ourselves, our lives, our thoughts, our actions, our morality, our worldview, our ethics, the questions we have, the doubts that we experience under Christ. That's the first thing. If you looked over at the book of Romans in chapter 8, In verse 7, we see another category that Christians are called to submit in, and they're supposed to arrange themselves under God's law. It says in Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit, that's hupotasso, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so a Christian in arranging themselves under Christ, is also professing and agreeing with the idea that we're called to arrange ourselves under the law of God, which you can take in a narrow sense to mean the the Ten Commandments, but probably better understood to be the revealed Word of God. Arrange yourself under it. Make sense of your life under it. Subject your life and your decision-making, the things that you want to do or don't want to do, to what the Word of God says. Christians, arrange yourself under God's law. You know, Christianity um, itself, in the early days of the church, advocated for this highly countercultural order in the relational sphere. It wanted Christians to look different than the world that they were living in, and so it made this radical statement Paul did here that we should submit to one another. Arrange yourselves, Christians, arrange yourselves in such a way that you are submitting to one another. And the idea of that was that the world would see that and it would recognize that it was something very different relationally. Because the fact of the matter is that almost every civilization especially the civilization that the Bible entered into in the Roman world, was a highly hierarchical order relationally. Now, the Bible doesn't say that we should have anarchy in terms of organization. It makes lots of statements about authority in in organizational matters, but in relational matters, it's telling us that we should be in submission to one another. In the Roman world, that just wasn't the way that it was. In the Roman world, those that were on top had power. And they were expected to, and they were very good at exercising their power in the relational sphere. They would do that to their own ends and goals. And so in that particular culture, you can compare this to other cultures, it was usually men, it was usually older men, it was usually older men 
that were um, owners of property or, um, or business or had governmental authority. They were the power structure in a hierarchical society, and they had the ability, because of their power position, to do whatever they wanted to do with the people underneath them. And they made laws and passed laws that would protect that power structure. In Roman society, women could not be educated. They could not testify in court. They could not own property. They could not divorce a man. And they could not inherit an estate. Amongst many, many other things that they were blocked from doing, and I'm not even talking about the ways that people that weren't Roman citizens were uh, oppressed in this power structure, this hierarchical structure. So along comes Christianity into the Roman power structure of the world, and Paul is shouting from the mountaintops, submit to one another. And you should feel and sense the way that these two ideas were crashing against one another. Because everything that a person in the Roman world grew up thinking was that if they had power, their job was to preserve and enforce their power relationally. And if you weren't one of them, your job was to do the best you could to survive. That's the way households were organized, businesses were organized, and relationships were organized. But here comes Christianity. And what does it do? It places restraints on the power of the powerful. And it grants rights to those who exist under some relational power structure from God. And that was countercultural. You Christians, then, Paul writes, should arrange yourself in such a way that you are showing submission to one another. The Bible talks about what this looks like in many places beyond this passage. One of them is 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 3 to 5. Do nothing, Peter wrote, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Or Galatians 3, 28, There is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The point of the Scriptures were that you have to stop oppressing each other under the world's relational categories. You must show mutual submission to one another in the way that you relate to one another. And so the Christian household in all of its parts was to be noted by its humility and by how each member would willingly submit to the other members in the household in appropriate ways in order to display the glory of the gospel. Now that prompts a question for us. Why would, why would a Christian, a newly converted Christian in the Roman world, maybe coming out of a Roman citizenship and having had power or being one of the powerful people in that culture, why in the world 
would someone who already has power give it up to be a blessing to other people in a relational sense? Why would you take that risk if you had that power? And the answer to it comes in the second half of verse 21. Look what it says. We should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ. The heart of the Christian household is reverence for Christ. And what does that word reverence mean? The word is in the Greek, phobos, which we translate often as fear. That's what it says. Submit to one another out of fear of Christ. But in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, the word fear and the word love are almost the same word when they come as a description of the relationship that we should have for God. They are incredibly close together because there is a a deference that is grounded in, in respect and honor for what that person is and does. And so we fear because we are loved. We love because He is fearful, and they come very closely together. You might be able to relate to two emotions existing very closely together at the very same moment if you think about uh, maybe your favorite sports teams. Uh, We often talk about how we have a love-hate relationship with our favorite sports teams. If you're a a fan of of the Blues right now, you have a love-hate relationship with the Blues because because they won the Stanley Cup finally a couple years ago, and we thought that they were good, and we love the franchise, and we want them to win, but they're not playing well now, and it's incredibly frustrating when you watch them. And the same might be true for another uh, uh, sports team that you love, and you're like, you love them, but you hate them, and those emotions are like wedded to each other. And that's this idea when it talks about fear and love for God. The way that the ESV translated it is reverence, and that's probably a good translation for us to have as best an understanding as we can of this. We should, we should submit to one another. We should give up our power positions in our households because of our fear and love for Jesus. Okay, so kind of prompts another question for us. Why Why should we reverence Christ? Why do we have reverence for Christ? And the answer to that is because of what He has done and is still doing and has promised to always keep doing. One of those uh, passages that describes this incredibly well is in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 to 8. Listen to what Paul wrote there. Have this mind amongst yourselves. And just stop there. Hey, he's saying, Christian people, Make this idea the center of the way that you live. Have this mind amongst yourselves. And what does he go on to say? Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, a thing to be clutched onto in such a way that you will never let anyone take it from you. But, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul is saying, do you want to know why you should submit to one another in your households? Because of how Jesus showed us what love looked like in relationship. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He came to us in the midst of our sin and rebellion. And here's the ma amazing one. It says he became obedient. I want you to think about that for a minute. Who is Jesus? He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God in three persons. But if you ask yourself, who did He become obedient to? He became obedient, even though He was God, to His Father in the relational Trinity. The Father said, Son, the way of salvation can only come through your death on the cross. Because you are the perfect Lamb of God. You are the only one who can take away the sins of the world and maintain justice and righteousness and love at the same time. And the Son became obedient. He became submissive. And He died willingly so that we can live. And so it should, it should convict us in our modern day when we think about submission being an anti-virtue because Jesus submitted. And Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself, if He can submit and if He does submit, how can we say we will not? Christians should be willing to give up relational power in our households in such a way that it enhances the household's reverence for Christ and His work, and so that it draws attention to that work amongst those who encounter it. That means husbands need to show submission to their wives according to what we're going to study next week. Love. Wives should show submission to their husbands according to what the Scripture says respect parents in their relationship with their children should show submission to them in their patience for the development of their child children should show obedience to their parents as those that God has placed in their lives to lead them servants must give obedience to their masters Christian masters must show earnest care for their servants those are the topics of the next three-week sermons. But none of them will make sense to you if you do not understand what Paul is saying in verse 21. You must submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now listen, this call to submission doesn't mean that there isn't order in a household. It doesn't mean that in some situations someone needs to have an authority in a situation or can make a rule. It doesn't mean that society should be without order. We know this from Romans chapter 13, just one of many places 
where Paul says, submit yourself to the governing authority. So the question for us then becomes, how do we work it out in our relationships? And those are the ways that we do it. And we're going to look together next week at husbands and wives. And it will feel uncomfortable. The things that the Bible tells us should be true. And we're going to want to rise up against it. And we're going to want to qualify it. And we're going to want to say, which is what I hear so often when it comes to marital counseling, well, I will submit to my husband if he loves me. Or I will love my wife if she submits to me. But that's not the way it works. The Bible says to husbands, you will love your wife even if she does not submit to you. And wives, you will submit to your husbands, even if he doesn't love you well. It is the practice of mutual submission in the Christian household. Last thing I want to say this morning is, what is the impact of this? What does this way of living actually do, even outside of the sense of our own uh, experience of it in our households. And I might just point you to 2 Corinthians 5.11, which Paul uh, said this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So there's that word fear again, phobos, which, I, as I said, is so closely knit to love. So in a way, he's gathering together our relationship under the Lord, and he says, we know this. We have, we have absorbed this. We have made this the center of who we are. If that's true of us, then our calling in life is to persuade others because of that reverence for God. And the big question, just factually, for those of you out there who are fact people, is this. Did this way of living make a difference? Did it make a difference in the world? Well, let me show you a picture. This little graph uh, on the screen. There were about a thousand Christians in the year 40 AD. About 0.0017% of the population of the Roman Empire. And by the year 350, there were about 34 million Christians, 57% of the Roman Empire. Those of you who are math people, statistical people, if you want to answer the question, did the way Christians lived make a difference? The answer is yes. Not just in their household, but in a whole range of ways, including the fact that they were willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. They were willing to pay a price for the sake of the gospel. And the world that watched them could not ignore them. What was it then that was going on inside of Christianity that made those kinds of things happen? Larry Hurtado is, uh, the late Larry Hurtado was a... um, Christian theologian, um, taught at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland on church history, and his specialty was the study of the early church. And he wrote a book called The Destroyer of the Gods, in which he did a deep study of what happened 
in the first centuries of Christianity that caused all of the pagan gods to die. And people come to Christ. What happened? And he named five things that the church did differently than the world. I want you to hear these things this morning because in many ways they are a reflection of this single verse in which we are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The first thing that he found that was universally true in Christian churches in the first and second century is that they were the most multi-ethnic and most multi-racial communities that you could find. Because, you know, people tend to want to pair up with their own and they want to be with people who look like them and are of the same social status of them or speak the same languages as them or have the same skin color as them. But as they looked at the Christian church in those early centuries, they noted that the Roman converts who were powerful people, the Roman converts to Christianity who had a power, were willing to sit in churches with the people that had no power, that were from other parts of the world. They let them sit at their tables and eat with them. They poured their lives into them so that their bond, their relational bond, transcended any external marker that the world could place on it. And the Roman citizenry citizenry looked at that and they said, huh, especially the poor and the marginalized who never could find a way The second thing that was true of the early church is it was highly generous and it cared for the poor. It was an anti-meritocracy. They gave. You read about it in the book of Acts. They gave to one another as any had need. They emptied their resources to the blessing of those who had little or nothing. The third thing was that they were non-retaliatory. In other words, they forgave. They forgave in radical ways what people had done to them. Many of the Roman power structure and authority had abused them and had murdered and killed and martyred their families and their loved ones. The bishops of the early church who assembled at Nicaea in 325 to write the Nicene Creed, many of them had scars on their body because of the persecution and abuse they had suffered at the hands of of the power structure around them, but they forgave. Number fourth, they were deeply and comprehensively pro-life and life-dignifying. Back in those days, there was abortion, but more common than abortion, there was infanticide. If women didn't commit uh, abortions or men didn't push women to have abortions, they just simply threw a baby in the dump. You want to know what the Christians did? They picked them up. They cared for them. They adopted them. They raised them. When people were dying because of plagues and diseases, Christians started hospitals. And they cared for people. This group of people was comprehensively pro-life. And finally, they had a countercultural sexual ethic. And that countercultural sexual ethic was that marriage was between one man and one woman. That's how sex was to work. That's when sex is good. That's when it does what it's supposed to do. According to the world around them, you could have sex with anyone you wanted at any time you wanted, especially if you were powerful. 
So these five things, the church was living out in the midst of a world that was going its own way. And this created profound admiration for Christians and ultimately and eventually, in many cases, for Christ. It's household evangelism. It was as if you remember when you were a kid and there was that one house on the block that everybody wanted to go to. And you play games in their yard and the mom would make you peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And it was just a place of refreshment. That's how Christian homes were in the first centuries of the church. Mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. Are we that way today? It's kind of interesting when you look at these five things. The first two of them, you remember what they were, uh, a multi-ethnic and multi-racial community and generosity for the poor. When you think about those kind of things, that's kind of what the liberal church is about. But then you think about the last two things, comprehensively pro-life and life-dignifying and a counter-cultural sexual ethic. That's kind of what the conservative church is about. Not many people are about forgiveness today. (laughs) The point is this. The call of Scripture is to go back to honoring all of those things and not just the ones that meet the perspective of our particular political desires. That's when the church will make a difference again. Because right now, unfortunately, most of our churches are not racially and ethnically integrated. We spend a lot of money on ourselves. We don't really treat each other very well in public. We bash each other into submission. St. Louis Clergy Coalition this week stood up advocating for abortion. The Clergy Coalition. And there's been massive failure by Christian leaders in the area of sexual ethics. A difference will be made when we as Christian people take seriously the call to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, the modern world is constantly trying to live in uh, a suit that's too small for it. The suit's too small, the shirt's too small, the pants are too small, and so they kind of walk around, and it looks good, but the second they bend over, it rips. And right now, our world is on the verge of recognizing that the way it has ordered itself doesn't work doesn't work. People are more depressed, sadder, angrier, and more filled with hate than they've ever been because they're wearing suits that are too tight. Christianity says, listen, I'm going to tailor the suit for you so that it fits. And the way that it will fit is the kind of things that we saw in the life of the early believers where it will look right and you'll be able to move freely within it. 
and find joy. We are called, brothers and sisters, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And over the next three weeks, we'll look at the ways we unpack that in our homes. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this exposure to what it means to submit out of reverence for Christ. We, we confess we don't fully understand it. It's hard for us. We have lots of questions about it. We don't quite know how to work it out because it seems like it's impossible, and yet your people of old, in the midst of a very pagan and non-Christian culture, recognized that they were called to be salt and light, and that when they took it seriously, a difference was made, and the glory of the name of Christ was celebrated, and people came to faith. Father, we pray today that you would bring people to faith. I pray you'll bring people to faith in this room that have deep questions about you, that they'll see that Christianity gives them the hope that they're after. I pray that you'll meet people's hearts this morning that are struggling with guilt and shame, and they will see that you, O Lord, are a God of grace and forgiveness. I pray that we, your people, will recognize that the greatest joy in life comes from loving each other as we declare the truth of your word and that you'll use even our little church to these great ends. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.